vaccine could be a ways off, but the battle against coronavirus is getting a shot of cash. They want to be able to reimburse state and local governments for their costs dealing with this. Disturbing the peace in Afghanistan. Broader talks begin this week after the Taliban launched attacks on Afghan security forces. Without a doubt, the Taliban's goal is to get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. And a battle of words in Washington after the Senate's top Democrat railed against conservative Supreme Court justices who were hearing an abortion case. Unusual for the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a statement like he did, calling out Senator Schumer. Tuesday was super for former Vice President Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Joe Biden seemed to feel it, right? When he went uh, and held his rally uh, Super Tuesday night, he was about as fired up as I think I've ever heard him. I'm Jared Halpern. I'm Rachel Sutherland from Washington. Vice President Joe Biden made quite a comeback this week in the Democratic race for the White House, winning nine states on Super Tuesday, surpassing expectations. You want a nominee who's a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, a proud Democrat, an Obama-Biden Democrat. Biden is now leading Bernie Sanders in the delegate count with contests coming up this week in six states, including Michigan and Idaho. Senator Elizabeth Warren suspended her campaign, telling reporters the fight will go on for working American families, though she declined to endorse anyone right away. Well, let's take a deep breath and spend a little time on that. We don't have to decide that this minute. Warren wasn't the last woman standing in the race. Tulsi Gabbard is still in, though it's unlikely she'll be on the debate stage on March 15th in Arizona because of Titan qualifications. With Sanders and Biden, the once-crowded field is now down to three. More on politics later. We'll get a recap of Super Tuesday races from Fox's Jared Halpern, who talked to Jessica Rosenthal, who's in California, and Evan Brown, who covered Texas. The other big story here in Washington and pretty much every place else is the spreading coronavirus, which has gone by coastal and many states in between. Confirmed cases have surged to 100,000 worldwide. Flanked by Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, President Trump signed an emergency funding bill. It's an unforeseen problem, not a problem. Came out of nowhere, but we're taking care of it. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram joins me. A lot of this money goes to state and local governments. You know, you talk to members of Congress from Washington uh, State, uh, Susan DelBenet, uh, Rick Larson, some others. They talk about the need there because there's been such a, a big contagion in Washington State, also in, in certain parts of California. So they want to be able to reimburse state and local governments for their costs dealing with this. There's also a, a rather small number, about 20 million, that's million with an M as in Mary, for the Small Business Administration, that's to help small businesses, obviously, who you know who have been trying to cope with this. You know, they get hit the, the worst. A lot of uh, small businesses, they don't have these robust health care plans. You know, there's just four or five people working there. If one person is out, then you're down 20 percent right away. So that's a key component of this bill. And then there's a large section of this bill 
that is devoted about $3 billion of the $8.3 billion uh, devoted for the development of a vaccine. And how are members of Congress reacting? We know there's been accusations of politicizing this virus. Has, has that calmed down a bit or is there still a lot of criticism for the Trump administration and its response? That seems to have calmed down a little bit. Now, now some Democrats obviously are still criticizing uh, President Trump specifically. Now, members of Congress, this has been a very interesting response. You know, they are social people. Members of Congress are not shaking hands right now. Mike Thompson, a Democrat from California, uh, he has a sign up in his office saying it's a contact free office. Ted Lieu, a Democrat from California, whose office is just down the hall from his in the Cannon House office building, a similar sign on the door. They have a protocol now in uh, Congressman Thompson's office where after you come in and meet with the staff or the member, they wipe down the chairs. They wipe down the, the table surfaces. Uh, members of Congress now are now doing the elbow bump. Oh. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York City, uh, she showed me how she would put her hand, her palm over her heart. Uh, this is something that a lot of uh, people do in church, faith, faith-based faith communities. Matt Gates, a Republican congressman from Florida, came on the House floor wearing a gas mask, and he described really? his fellow members as human Petri dishes. I should note that wearing a gas mask on the House floor, unless there were to actually be a civil defense emergency, is against the House rules. <laughs> and so are certain hats, but that's really fascinating. They wore a gas mask on the House floor. Leave it to Matt Gates. And so that that is really interesting to get the mood of what's happening on the Hill. That people, that the lawmakers themselves are concerned. Is there hand sanitizer spread about as well? You know, I started asking questions about what the the protocols were going to be. If you were not a member of Congress or a U.S. Capitol Police officer, uh, if you're a staffer, a visitor, member of the press corps like myself, you come in, you have to go through a magnetometer, and you have to take out your phones and your car keys and put them in these dishes, which then go through an x-ray, x-ray machine. I asked if those are cleaned, and they're like, no, oh. never. And it was very funny. Later this week, I came in through the Senate carriage entrance, and they had all new bowls, and they smelled like Clorox. <laughs> <laughs> because that is the common that is the common denominator, you know, that everybody who comes into the Capitol puts has to put their yeah. phone and keys and everything, We've personal effects into these dishes. Uh-huh. And so so little things like that are happening. Well, Chad, it sounds like you're making an impact. That's really cool with the uh, scanners being smelling of Clorox. So <laughs> hey, at least I could maybe that's why I'm, I'm well so far. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chad, stay well and we appreciate your time. A big question looming over the virus is who should be tested and when? And will there be enough tests to go around? The Centers for Disease Control revised criteria this week to include anyone who has a cough and fever with a doctor's consent. The CDC is advising doctors to rule out other causes of illness before testing for COVID-19. Dr. Manny Alvarez is a Fox News medical contributor and senior managing editor for Fox Health News. Well, right now, you know, the testing should be focused on on folks that are in the risk categories, people that have traveled from different areas that where we we have, you know, a significant number of cases, you know, Europe and, of course, uh, South Korea, China, Japan. Uh, so those are the main uh, the main areas right now. Uh, the other areas, of course, are following the guidelines of local health departments, where you have you know significant outbreaks, like in Washington State now in New York. Uh, the health department is going to be doing you know sort of investigations to see people that have tested positive. Uh, what are the areas of inclusion that they need to, uh, you know, to do testing on, whether it's schools or synagogues or, 
other kinds of facilities. So those would be the secondary areas of concentration. And of course, the third area would be the health system uh, itself. Um, you know, uh, a lot of these folks uh, are ending up in, either in emergency rooms or are being admitted to hospitals. And of course, now every hospital that is receiving those patients uh, in their health care facilities, probably the personnel will be tested uh, on an ongoing basis to make sure that there's no internal spread of the uh, coronavirus uh, to those pers- uh, personnel. We're hearing, though, that some people have gone to emergency rooms, been concerned, and then get uh, get the bill at the end for uh, coronavirus testing. If someone's experiencing upper respiratory symptoms, fever, what should they do? Because we all know there are tons of bugs that just float around all the time. Right. Well, I, I think that, you know, it, one of the tools that a lot of health centers are beginning to use is, you know, telemedicine. Uh, which is readily available in many uh, areas around the United States where you may have a patient who may just have, a, you know, a, a common cold. Uh, they don't want to ex- you know, expose anybody. Uh, I, I think the American public has been wonderful in realizing how important self-quarantine is. And, uh, and to that effect, uh, when they do that and if they have some health concerns, I think a lot of health systems are encouraging telemedicine where they can just go online and, and talk to a, to a health, uh, health advisor and go over symptoms and indeed go over a history of what uh, they're feeling and then decide from that point in time whether they, they should seek medical help to an emergency room or, 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 or something like that. As far as the symptoms of coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 versus the common cold or the flu, I mean, most of us, I've had the flu. It's just awful. It knocks you flat immediately. <laughs> right. Are the symptoms a little different? Do they come on more gradually? What do we know about how this virus behaves? We have a lot of data now that has been presented, and you can clearly see that the COVID-19 symptoms, yes, they're very similar to a common cold. You know, it can be sometimes almost asymptomatic. Maybe you get a little bit of a headache or a body ache, and that's about it, or sniffles. Um, And then people can have, you know, more throat congestion and and sore throat and, uh, and a fever, that type of thing. Uh, all the way to then respiratory complications where you have now a pneumonia, you have a lot of uh, uh, chest congestion, which makes it uh, difficult to breathe. But for the most part, if you look at the, at the data, it's, it's, it's mild to very light, moderate symptoms. So uh, this is why it's so difficult to identify just on the basis of symptoms. I mean, you don't get a specific rash or you don't get a uh, some sort of... Uh, a symptom that would be so unique to COVID-19 that you say, "Aha, uh, you have a problem." I think it's 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 more on the on the line of the things that I have alluded to before. Yeah, and I think that's part of the difficulty with tracking this virus. A lot of people could have what they think is a common cold, and they're they're out and about and in public when they could spread it to somebody who has uh, underlying health issues or just spread it in general. That's that's really the crux of the issue because it's so similar to other bugs. And, and, and you would know very well as a doctor that a coronavirus, this one is just one kind of coronavirus. There could be any kind Medi- of one you're dealing with. 
<laughs> exactly right. I mean, this. I try to explain to people. I mean, I, I know that this COVID nineteen is a new variety of coronavirus. Okay, but it's still a coronavirus, which has been associated with many other types of you know of upper respiratory illnesses. Uh, I think that this is going to be something that is going to evolve over time. Yes, we're going to get more cases because we're testing more people. The health system is perfectly ready for any admissions that are necessary. What about a vaccine? We have heard anywhere from months to even years uh, for one to be produced. What are you hearing? Well, I think the vaccine will become available pretty pretty soon. Uh, I think that when we get the coronavirus, we will have the vaccine. I would like to see how many people are going to go out and say, oh, by the way, let me take the coronavirus vaccine yeah. because I don't want to fi- find myself in the same, in the same boat. But yeah, we will have it. I think what, what, one of the things that, that, that is will come out of this, with especially with the president and having all the uh, people in charge of the vaccine companies, is that you, you're going to find that we're going to be able in the future, not for the COVID-19, but for any virus that evolves, we're going to have better methodology and better engineering in creating vaccines quicker as, you know, let's say 20 years ago, which would have taken years and years to get a vaccine available. The numbers are going to change, no doubt about it. We're doing more testing. Don't focus on the numbers. And and ultimately, hopefully, in the summer months, we're going to see an attrition of cases, and you're going to see this, uh, things begin to spike down, and everybody would go about the business. And let's see if coronavirus is in the news in November of this year. Okay. Dr. Alvarez, thanks for joining us, and stay well. Thank you. Disturbing a fragile peace in Afghanistan. The Taliban attacked Afghan security forces this week, just days after a historic peace deal was signed. The Taliban to their, uh, are honoring their peace in terms of not, uh, not attacking U.S. and coalition forces, but not in terms of sustaining the reduction in violence. Defense Secretary Mark Esper spoke to lawmakers after the Pentagon launched what it described as a defensive strike as Taliban fighters were assaulting an Afghan security checkpoint. Broader peace talks are set to begin this week. U.S. officials have stressed the agreement is conditional on the Taliban honoring its side of the deal, which includes cutting ties with terror groups. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke to Fox and Friends. Look, we're not naive. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all know who the Taliban are and what they have done to a America. Speaking at a Fox News town hall, President Trump said he believes the Taliban wants to make a deal. I think after 19, actually going very close to 20 years, they're also tired of fighting, believe it or not. But they are warriors and they are fighters, and that's what they've done for a thousand years. Under the agreement, the U.S. would reduce its troop presence to 8,500 over the coming months, with a goal of zero troops in Afghanistan. Some Republican defense hawks, like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, say a counterterrorism force needs to remain. He says he doesn't trust the Taliban to police ISIS and al-Qaeda. Lucas Tomlinson covers the Pentagon for Fox News. Well, there are signs the deal is already unraveling, Rachel, just days after it was signed in Doha, Qatar on Saturday. Uh, there were a number of uh, attacks. The U.S. military says there were actually 43 Taliban attacks in southern Afghanistan's Helmand province on March 3rd. A day later, the U.S. military took action uh, to defend its Afghan partners and launched a drone strike. And so here we are five days after that agreement, and many are wondering in Washington and around the world, will this agreement hold? Right. And we need to point out that the Taliban, uh, they weren't attacking coalition forces, right? They were attacking Afghan security forces. It's still not a good situation, but 
they they were going after what a, a security checkpoint in the Helmand province and some others. Uh, and what's the kind of fatalities and casualties that came out of that? Correct. Well, Afghan officials say, you know, close to a dozen Afghan soldiers were killed and others wounded. Uh, you're right to point out no U.S. military service members were attacked or injured. And the U.S. military's top officer, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told Congress on Wednesday that uh, they're, you know, part of this agreement. There will not be any attacks on U.S. troops, U.S. soldiers. But it's notable that in this agreement signed by President Trump's special representative to the peace talks, Salme Khalilazad, there is no reduction of violence in calling for in the agreement. In fact, the only two mentions of the word ceasefire have to do with what the U.S. government hopes will happen when the Taliban sit down with the Afghan government, and that's supposed to start on March 10th. But one of the biggest sticking points, another sign that this deal is already in jeopardy, is part of the agreement calls for the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners. Some uh, critics of this deal who call this a retreat because it calls for uh, a reduction of U.S. forces immediately in Afghanistan down from 12,000 to 8,600 and eventually in 14 months for all U.S. troops to leave the country. In addition to all that, it calls up front for these 5,000 Taliban prisoners to be released. Critics will call this uh, the Taliban reinforcing its ranks and a retreat by the United States and Afghanistan. Other people say these were necessary terms that to end America's longest war. And the Taliban has wanted those prisoners released even before uh, the official broader peace talks were set to begin. Obviously, this week they're going to be taking place if things hold together. Um, what kind of progress has the Taliban made? Uh, it looks like uh, the, the president of Afghanistan rejected that whole cloth. Correct. Uh, pre- Afghan President Ghani, right away, a day after Defense Secretary Mark Esper flew to Kabul to meet with the Afghan president and NATO Secretary General to talk about the deal. It was happening at the same time the actual ink was being uh, was drying and the, 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 ter- the deal was being signed in Doha, Qatar. Uh, Esper went to Kabul to reassure Ghani. And then a day later, the Afghan president renounced the deal, said, uh, no, we're not releasing 5,000 Taliban prisoners just to restore their ranks. I'm not doing that. And that was a big precondition. The Afghan government says that's a precondition for talks. The U.S. government in this deal is demanding the 5,000 prisoners be uh, sprung right away. Let's go back to the troop withdrawal. If this peace deal holds together, and if the broader talks actually work out, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Republican defense hawk, has said he's not really in favor of that. He wants an anti-terrorism coalition there because he says he doesn't trust the Taliban to police ISIS or al-Qaeda. Um, so there's disagreement even on the Hill as to troop levels should should the peace deal move forward. Correct. And what a lot of critics of this deal are saying is that the Taliban has not renounced al-Qaeda. Secretary of State Pompeo points you to page three of the deal where it says the Taliban will, quote, not allow any of its members, other individuals or groups, including al-Qaeda, to use the soil of Afghanistan to threaten the security of the United States and its allies. Pompeo says that's the renouncing of al-Qaeda. Critics say not so fast, including uh, both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill are saying, where is the Taliban renouncing their ties to al-Qaeda? Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was just asked at a press briefing on Thursday about this very thing, and, and Pompeo admitted 
conceded that it's only been a few days since the deal, uh, in essence, has not seen that public rebuke. A lot of people are demanding that public rebuke. Pompeo and other supporters of the deal in the, in the Trump administration say it's in there because the Taliban has pledged that uh, you know Afghanistan will not be used for continued attacks. However, the Taliban have been saying that for many, many years, so many people are skeptical about the deal. Yeah, people don't really trust the Taliban, and that would make sense considering their history. What do you think the Taliban's end game is here? Are they acting like they really want peace? What are they after? Without a doubt, the Taliban's goal is to get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. Today, there's more than 12,000 of them still on the ground. This peace deal right off the bat calls for roughly 4,000 to leave the country to reduce the number of troops uh, within three months down to 8,600 off the bat. Now, the head of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, General Austin Miller, says that's okay. He can still do his mission, the counterterrorism mission, can still go after al-Qaeda. He can still go after ISIS. There's an ISIS affiliate in eastern Afghanistan. He says he still has the forces for that. Um, he also has some forces to train Afghan forces because that raises other questions. If the U.S. military were to completely leave Afghanistan, who is left to support the Afghan government? Who's left to train uh, the Afghan military? And more importantly, who's going to provide the jets and drones overhead? Because uh, while the Afghan military has been decimated in recent years, uh, tens of thousands have died. Uh, many have been protected and, and villages and, and, and provinces all across Afghanistan from U.S. air power. And giving up U.S. bases, a, a complete withdrawal, many critics are calling that a complete withdrawal. What about coalition forces? Will some be left behind? And does the Taliban want them out too? Yeah, they do. NATO will be in lockstep with the United States, and it's part of the language in the deal that when the withdrawal happens of some of these U.S. troops, there will be a proportional withdrawal of NATO and other allied forces as well. Yeah, sounds like a lot of moving parts. And, and, and should it move forward, and, and at this stage, it's completely uncertain. Uh, what will the Taliban's role be with the Afghanistan government? They seemed at one time to want to take the whole place over. How in the world can they coexist together? Well, supporters of this agreement say for nearly two decades of this war, the Taliban have never wanted to sit down with the Afghan government. And that's true. It's it's what uh, stymied the Bush and Obama administrations is they wanted peace talks with the Taliban to include the Afghan government, a point rejected for nearly two decades by the Taliban. It was rejected this time again when the when the initial peace talks got underway with the Trump administration starting in 2018. However, this agreement signed by the Taliban's chief negotiator and co-founder Mullah Berdour says the Taliban will sit down with the Afghan government March 10 and supporters of this agreement, members of the Trump administration says that's a very big deal and including uh, renouncing al-Qaeda. Well, we'll be looking for this. I'm sure you'll be covering these broader peace talks as they unfold. We really appreciate you joining us, Lucas. Well, thanks, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be on. The Senate's top Democrat faced accusations of threatening two conservative justices at a rally outside the high court this week as they were hearing arguments on an abortion case. Here are some of the words that got Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in hot water as he warned that if abortion rights are threatened, you will pay the price. 
You won't know what hit you. The remarks were directed at Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. A spokesperson for Schumer said his words were misrepresented and that he meant Republicans would face political consequences if they ruled against abortion rights. Schumer later walked back the comments, saying he shouldn't have used that language, but he stopped short of apologizing. I'm from Brooklyn. We speak in strong language. He maintained he was not making a threat, but Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said there's no other way to see it. There is nothing to call this except a threat. And there's absolutely no question to whom to whom it was directed. In a rare rebuke, Chief Justice John Roberts called the remarks inappropriate and dangerous. The case causing all the controversy concerns a Louisiana law requiring doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. Proponents of the law say it protects women's health. Opponents say it will severely limit access to abortion and chip away at Roe versus Wade. Fox News Radio White House correspondent John Decker joins me. He's also a lawyer, so he can expand on this controversial case. Well, it's interesting, Rachel, because the Supreme Court just a few years ago heard a very similar case, and they ruled that the state law in Texas uh, involving the same issue, admitting privileges at hospitals, was unconstitutional. It was a five to three decision. Uh, What's interesting is that just in a short amount of time later, just a few years later, the Supreme Court decided to hear this case. Uh, It's unusual because usually once Uh, an issue is settled, it's a long time before the Supreme Court would take up uh, a case involving similar matters once again. And so what's the difference now? It's the makeup of the court. Since the Supreme Court heard that case involving the Texas abortion law, which they found unconstitutional, there are two new members of the court, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, uh, named to the bench by President Trump. And they may view this particular law differently than the makeup of the court, uh, which included uh, Anthony Kennedy just a few years ago. Right. That's a big difference. In this case, Chief Justice Roberts could be, I guess, seen as a swing vote. Uh, now, obviously, there was a big fracas outside of the court. A lot of times there's there's rallies. Even lawmakers do rally outside the Supreme Court from time to time. But these words from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer really lit the, the Chief Justice's hair on fire. He issued a statement saying his, repar- his remarks were inappropriate and dangerous. Uh, how has the White House been and the president been reacting to this? President was certainly paying attention to what happened uh, over at the Supreme Court earlier this week uh, with this rally, this abortion rights rally, as was the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Unusual for the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a statement like he did, calling out Senator Schumer, uh, saying that Senator Schumer's comments at this camp, uh, this abortion rights rally uh, were both inappropriate and also dangerous. And then we saw a day later uh, Senator Schumer on the floor of the Senate walking back those remarks, saying he misspoke, saying his words went uh, too far. So essentially he agreed with the Chief Justice. But the White House certainly did pay attention to uh, what happened in this and the president uh, saying that if a Republican uh, senator had said something similar about a liberal justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, there may be have been an even uh, more different reaction than we saw from Chief Justice uh, John Roberts coming from uh, different members of uh, uh, Congress and, and maybe even from the media as well. Have we heard much this week from the president when it comes to his remarks about uh, two Supreme Court justices, uh, the liberal justices recusing themselves from cases involving his administration, whereas that's not 
anywhere near as inflammatory as what Chuck Schumer did. It was certainly controversial. Well, it was. And uh, no, aside from uh, this particular question that you've asked me being brought up uh, to President Trump during a town hall that he had in Scranton, Pennsylvania uh, earlier this week, and the president distinguishing his criticism of Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg from uh, what was perceived by some as threats, which were directed at Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch by uh, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. So that's the only context in which the president brought up that criticism uh, of those two liberal Supreme Court justices. Let's turn now to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which the court is set to rule on in June. If the high court sides with the Justice Department, what does the administration plan to do about people who are brought here illegally as children? Well, that's a really good question, and that's one of the reasons why the president met uh, late in the week with a number of Republican senators, including Lindsey Graham, an ally of the president from South Carolina, and another, uh, and, and, and a few other Republican senators, because uh, the question you asked me is the unknown. What happens if a DACA is essentially done away with? Uh, and so what the purpose of the meeting that uh, President Trump had with these Republican senators was to figure out what's the fix? What can, in a legislative sense, be done to protect these DACA recipients uh, and to change the law? And where is there sort of a meeting of the minds? Where can there be some sort of bipartisan compromise in terms of dealing with this particular issue? Right. Well, the Trump administration's beef here is that they're saying that former President Obama overreached his executive authority by uh, just putting DACA into law by executive order. That's their argument, right? It is. And interestingly enough, uh, if you go back a few years, I covered the White House with uh, Barack Obama, and he himself said uh, before uh, taking the action that he did that he could not do what he ultimately did. He could not sign an executive order uh, protecting these DACA recipients. Well, ultimately, he did just that. And uh, obviously, uh, the Justice Department, now controlled by uh, Republicans uh, and Attorney General Barr, believe that President Obama went too far. It was executive overreach. Well, it's now up to the Supreme Court to decide whether or not uh, the, whether then President Obama's actions uh, were uh, an example of executive overreach. And we should get a decision from the Supreme Court handed down by the end of June. Of course, I could kick it back to Congress. And though there's a different uh, makeup uh, from other fights, I remember about a year ago, the whole issue of DACA and immigration shut down the government, the longest government shutdown we've ever had. So it makes you wonder if Congress would be able to get any kind of meeting of the minds on this. Well, that's right. And it's even more difficult, Rachel, when you factor in the fact that it's an election year and so little gets done in a legislative sense in an election year. And when you're talking about immigration, that makes it uh, even that much more difficult. Immigration uh, for a lot of members of Congress, both on the left and on the right, is essentially a third rail. It's the reason why nothing has gotten moved forward in terms of immigration reform over the past few decades. Let's go back around to the coronavirus. President Trump's message is to keep calm, but some are saying the administration's response has been slow and inadequate. We did see the president sign that $8.3 billion spending bill. And there was a trip planned to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. It was called off. It was back on. What happened? 
Well, it's now back on. So the president will uh, on Friday visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Initially, it was called off because there was concern that there was uh, an employee at the CDC who had uh, tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, That was a false positive. In actuality, the employee tested negative. And as a result, the president uh, will join others in going down to the CDC, uh, including the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, And so this is something that uh, I think uh, should give some comfort to those uh, who are uh, concerned, maybe even panicked, uh, as it relates to uh, the coronavirus. We know that uh, as of Friday, the death toll of the coronavirus outbreak across the U.S., according to the CDC, rose to at least 14. And there's more than 225 confirmed cases, Rachel, across the country. And so how was the White House finally responding to criticism that uh, the response has been almost uh, too little too late? Well, I don't think it's too little too late. We don't know the answer to that, you know, and the president is correct. We have seen uh, fewer instances of coronavirus uh, detected in our country, as large as it is, than in other countries, such as Italy uh, and South Korea. So I I think that the criticism is a little bit overblown. We don't know how bad the problem is just yet because testing hasn't uh, been done uh, on a national scale. But uh, the president is uh, certainly trying to allay uh, fears that Americans may have. One way to do that uh, is to have daily briefings concerning the coronavirus. Uh, That hasn't happened before. In fact, the White House press briefing room is now being used on a regular basis, uh, which is... Uh, And so we'll hear from the vice president, Vice President Mike Pence, who is the leader of the coronavirus White House task force uh, on Friday afternoon concerning the latest uh, uh, about administration efforts. In addition to that, uh, Rachel, on an economic sense, because there is an economic component to this, the White House is considering a number of things to prop up the U.S. economy, a tax relief for uh, the airlines uh, and travel and cruise industries hurt by the coronavirus. And there's even talk of perhaps a tax cut for individuals. That's something that the president says he may do if the Fed doesn't act in terms of uh, cutting rates even more, which they did a little bit earlier in the week. I'm sure you're keeping that seat in the White House press briefing room dusted off uh, for updates. So we appreciate you joining us, John, and stay well. Oh, thanks a lot, Rachel. You too. Have a great weekend. And then there were three. Hello, I'm Jared Halpern. In a Democratic race that featured a record number of candidates and a record number of women and candidates of color, just three candidates remain with delegates. Before I get too far ahead here, let me thank Rachel Sutherland for the heavy lifting this week from Washington. I spent a few days away from the campaign trail in Capitol Hill after our marathon broadcast on Super Tuesday. A couple of former candidates have some time for R&R as well. The morning after Tuesday's 14 states and one U.S. territory voted, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg called it quits after disappointing finishes from Maine to California. I entered the race for president to defeat Donald Trump. And today I am leaving the race for the same reason, 
to defeat Donald Trump because staying in would make it more difficult to achieve that goal. The next day, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren ended her once front-running campaign after failing to secure many new delegates Tuesday night. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who have gotten short into the stick over and over. So a field that was once larger than two dozen candidates is now down to this. 77-year-old former Vice President Joe Biden, 78-year-old Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, and 38-year-old Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Though for all intents and purposes, this is a two-man race between Biden, who after being considered politically dead after caucuses in Iowa and Nevada in the primary in New Hampshire, scored a massive win in South Carolina, then followed up days later with a 10-state victory on Super Tuesday. Sanders won the biggest prize in the primaries, California. Gabbard, by the way, did secure at least one, possibly more delegates from the caucus in American Samoa, her birthplace. As a reminder, Democrats need 1,991 delegates to secure their party's nomination. Biden is halfway there with more than 600. Sanders trails with about 560. Those numbers will fluctuate as California counts mail-in ballots through the weekend and in the next week. But before we figure out what happens next with primaries coming up in Michigan, Mississippi, Washington State and elsewhere, let's figure out how we got here. For that, two of our correspondents who spent Super Tuesday on the trail join us. Evan Brown was in Austin, Texas. Jessica Rosenthal was in Los Angeles. All right. So, Evan, uh, spending Super Tuesday in one of my favorite cities, uh, Austin, Texas, uh, where the uh, tacos are always fresh and the beer is always cold. So, I think Austin is like everyone's favorite uh, city in Texas. Perhaps. No Not just Texas. From. All of America. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true born Texan That's there, right. Jared. Uh, howdy, y'all. Um, so, I mean, Texas was the big surprise Tuesday night. Um, the second most delegates at stake... Um, and, you know, that early vote came in, Eben, and we were like, wow, okay, Bernie Sanders is going to do okay, and, and it was sort of the, the Mike Bloomberg effect, the now former candidate for uh, the Democratic nomination, about what impact he would have. But as the day of vote started to come in, boy, did it turn around for the former Vice President Joe Biden. Well, yes, and I think you've uh, what you're talking about here uh, demonstrates what can happen in the scope of 36 hours, because there was about 36 hours between the end of early voting and getting ready to actually opening opening up the election day polling places that Pete Buttigieg endorses uh, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar endorses Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke uh, endorses Joe Biden. And then you have people who still hadn't made up their minds, maybe, or had their minds changed before going in on primary day to cast their vote. And that showed a difference. Um, It is uh, widely believed by a lot of the Texas Democratic uh, Party leaders uh, who I was uh, spending the evening with on primary night uh, that uh, there were a lot of people who made up their minds on their way uh, to to their polling place, that it, it had to have been that way. Um, because they were tracking early voting very carefully, and they weren't surprised by seeing the the Sanders lead in the early voting. They were a bit surprised, or at least, um, I don't want to say dumbfounded, but you know, pleasantly surprised, I guess might be the word, uh, uh, that their uh, their numbers would change like that 
especially when those uh, uh, those late uh, precincts started finally coming in much, much, much later in the evening. In the uh, time that you spent out there, what was the impact of Mike Bloomberg on air? Could you turn on the TV, turn on the radio without hearing from him? No, he, he was practically everywhere. But here, here was the most interesting thing about that. You'd, you'd put the television on. There'd be a Mike Bloomberg ad immediately followed by an Elizabeth Warren ad talking about it's impossible to win an election by playing ads all the time like Mike Bloomberg does. Uh, well, we, maybe she was right. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, listen, it's a fascinating story because you had Bloomberg, who is his first time on the ballot as a candidate, and it did not go well, obviously, we've talked about the half a billion dollars nearly spent right. in, in advertising. In, in well, he's big ads. on American Samoa. And, <laughs> he did uh, win American Samoa. Um, you know, that is uh, uh, what a lot of people uh, don't understand is that in, in people, uh, Americans, citizens who live in territories don't get to vote for the president, a presidency. Uh, they but, do, but uh, they get they get delegates. Yeah, they do get delegates. It's their and, only voice. Yeah, so they, they take it very seriously. They do. And yeah. Bloomberg, for what it's worth, had staff in American Samoa. I don't believe any other uh, campaign did. Um, the interesting thing, and let's bring in Jessica Rosenthal to the conversation, who spent her uh, Super Tuesday in another great city. I don't want to dump on Los Angeles. It's a wonderful <laughs> place as well. Um, and you saw how quickly uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, this this coalescing of that wing of the Democratic Party, uh, Jessica, ha- has been I-, I can't think of an example where, where something like that has right. happened so quickly. And Joe Biden seemed to feel it right when he went uh, and held his rally uh, Super Tuesday night. He was about as fired up as I think I've ever heard him, at least on the campaign trail, saying, you know, everybody said we were dead. We are very much alive. Um, And this is, you know, this night is proof we're feeling good. You know, even before he took the stage at his own rally, he had been traversing California um, on Super Tuesday talking about how South Carolina was proof that he was still in this and that he was feeling good about states like North Carolina and Virginia, which were, in fact, called for him pretty early in the evening. And he, you know, continued on in in speaking to reporters, looking ahead, talking about, you know, that he thinks he's going to do well in Michigan and Florida and down the line. Uh, South Carolina just renewed him. If it didn't renew, not only renewing his campaign, it it sort of seemed like it revived him in in terms of the energy that he was projecting. So, yeah, uh, that coalescing was pretty big, it seems like, in the minds of voters, but also in the mind of Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, we we struggled on air Tuesday night trying to think of a historical example of somebody having such a bad February and then just turning it around the first week of March. It's hard to come up with an example similar to what we've seen from Joe Biden over the last uh, week and a half. But, you know, it is not as if it is a one person race. Bernie Sanders wins California. We'll get the bulk of the delegates, a lot of delegates out there in California, as we've talked about more than than 400 of them. You have spoken, uh, I know, Jessica, to a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters. What do they make of where this race is going, because there's been questions about if this comes down to a Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden race, as it appears it is beginning to look like. How do you unify this party come November? Yeah. Feeling is there's sort of two tracks of Bernie thought, right? You're you're either in this sort of mindset of Bernie's the guy. Bernie can do it. 
He's the Trump on the left. He's got that enthusiasm. Uh, he's he's got the young people and Latino voters. And so you, you've got that sort of excitement narrative coming from the, the Bernie side. And you can see that when you go to a Bernie rally. I mean, it's it's far and away a bigger rally than really any of the other candidates have had. I was at uh, one in New Hampshire. It was a rock concert. The Strokes played. Yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. And, he, and they, his campaign knows how to turn it into that. Now, the other Bernie thought train is this is the Democratic Party getting in the way. They're trying to they, they got a hold of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, and they're they're desperately trying to keep Bernie out of this race. And so there's this bitterness within the Bernie camp that I know everybody talking on this podcast right now is very well aware of. Um, so I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this plays out because I really don't think those diehard Bernie supporters are going to say, well, you know, gee, gee, golly, gosh, it's OK. We're going to go with Biden now. That is not the vibe from the Bernie supporters when you talk to them. Well, a lot of that's going to depend on the message of the candidate if it gets to that point. And obviously, uh, we'll see. You make a great point, though, that these are two uh, very different uh, campaigns. And it seems like this is uh, not that dissimilar from what we saw in the Republican primary four years ago yeah. with very distinct choices for the direction of a party moving forward. Yeah, and well, and, and I'm actually also kind of interested in what all of this means um, for Iowa and New Hampshire. If Pete Buttigieg <laughs> right. was the delegate leader in Iowa, yeah. and yes, Bernie, Bernie definitely, you know, the the train, the Bernie train left the station out of Iowa as well. I don't want to downplay his, uh, you know, sort of dual victory there in Iowa. But what what does all of this mean for that discussion about the importance of Iowa and New Hampshire moving forward? Um, I well, just don't to that know. point, it, I mean, Joe Biden finishes fourth in Iowa, uh, exactly. finishes, what was he, fourth or fifth in New Hampshire. Um, so what does that mean? Are there four tickets now out of Iowa <laughs> instead of three? Well, we're, we always sort of rewrite the role that, that the uh, early states play every four years. But you bring up a good point. The Democratic Party had already talked about whether or not Iowa, after it took him so long to count votes, was going to continue to play that, that, that early role. And certainly this election has made us rethink those as well. Uh, Jessica Rosenthal, Evan Brown tireless reporters for us through this campaign season we're just getting started though so we'll continue to check in uh weekly i'm sure thanks guys you got it thanks jared that'll do it for the from washington podcast this week Next week, more Democratic primary contests on Tuesday. Voters in Michigan, Idaho, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington State will go to the polls with no clear delegate frontrunner, although Joe Biden currently has an edge. Also, the next Democratic debate is Sunday, March 15th in Arizona, two days before primaries in Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and Arizona. Also next week, broader peace talks are set to begin in Afghanistan with a goal of ending America's longest war. But recently, Recent violence by the Taliban and disagreements about the fine print of an agreement are threatening to derail the process. We'll also keep you in a loop on the latest on coronavirus, its spread, and how to keep you and your family safe. Stay up to date on all the latest news on your Fox News radio station. Until then, thanks for listening. For Jared Halpern and all of us here at Fox News Radio, I'm Rachel Sutherland from Washington. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.